Hello, and welcome to Steady State Podcast, your rowing fix where the water is always flat, the catches are clean, and you can always hear the coxswain. We're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates the expansive array of rowers, coaches, and coxswains in a podcast designed to savor real-life experience from launch to coxie at every level. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode, a deep dive into our Changemaker Scholarship Initiative. We believe access to opportunities to thrive should be inclusive regardless of ability to pay. So we seek out educational and professional development events and courses for visionaries in the rowing community. We are proud to partner with organizations and businesses to make these opportunities possible for rowers, coaches, and coxswains, plus club boards and staff. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, would you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. We're really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. Back in August 2021, at Masters Nationals in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, we met a lot of interesting people, including J-Class rower Margie Ellsberg. We reached out to find out more from this tiny and mighty athlete. At 78 years young, Margie and her husband Mickey currently row with Upper Valley Rowing Club in Hanover, New Hampshire, and Chinook Performance Racing. Today, we're talking with this former journalist, longtime tomboy, and smitten rower about taking up the sport later in life, racing, rowing media, and more. Well, thank you for being here and uh, joining us right after getting off the water. We appreciate it. Will probably be fun. Yeah, we actually read an article about learn to row being offered and you were quoted because uh, you had and you were such an evangelist and I know I'm an evangelist for learn to row absolutely so can you tell us how you found that class and how you got on the water when I was at Boston University I asked the coach saw this man with a clipboard along the Chester the, the Charles River and I was probably a sophomore so that would be 1960 two probably 62 63 and I asked him if I could do what those people out on the river were doing and he said no and I said why not and he said because it's a men's sport and Mm -hmm. I said what are they doing that I can't do Mm -hmm. and he just sort of walked away that was the end of the conversation and it just looked beautiful. It just looked wonderful. And I figured whatever they're doing, I could do that. So when we moved from Washington, D.C. to the eastern shore of Maryland on one of the tributaries, Chester River, one of the wonderful tributaries in the Chesapeake Bay, 23 miles up, these people have gone back and forth and I could see them out of my window. And I asked my neighbor who wrote, I said, can I do that? And she said, yeah, they're going to have a, you know, learn to, there's a learn to grow class every year and it's coming up whenever it was coming up. There were five people in my class, four guys and me. I was 60. The, the age of all of us was, nobody was younger than 60 and nobody was older than 70. So we were, the five of us were 60 to 70. As it turns out, as you might imagine, the men wanted sort of a 
a maid, you know, so they made me the cops. So I said I had actually joined the, the learn to row so I could row, but I'd be happy to cock some of the time. And so our coach and teacher did a lot of the, a lot of the coxing. So did I. And that, that was fun. And that's how I found it. And I never looked back. Well, it's excellent that you had held on to this notion of getting involved in rowing for 30 some odd years and finally said, let's do it. And someone didn't blink an eye and it was time. Do it. And the first time I rode in the head of the Charles, I knew that, it, that you know, I, I, I knew we were, I, I knew Boston because I'd gone to BU. And when we put the boat in, I knew we were at Harvard. And then they said, okay, row down. I was in bow and they said, okay, we're going to the starting line. I said, okay, fine. So we went to the starting line and we're in the basin and waiting. And they said, you know, we have about 17 minutes to wait. So, you know, hang out. We just, you know, sit here. And I looked up and there was Boston University. And this voice came out of the inside of me and said, you're not here, but I am. So there, right? <laughs> Finger in your eye. I did it. That's right. And and yeah. there and you know, and within minutes of Title IX in 1972, um, the the Boston University. You know, I'm in many places, and, and BU was one of the first. Started a women's club, you know, women's team, and the women's team's done spectacularly well ever since. As you might imagine. Yeah. All right. So you're 60 years old. You get involved in this Learn to Row novice program. You do some coxing. You do some rowing. What was it that got you hooked? When you finally got the chance to get in the boat, what was it about rowing that you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep at this? Well, the only other sport that's, well, two sports have really grabbed me because I've been a, you know, a as a kid, I was what they then called a tomboy. Now they call me an athlete. But as far as I'm concerned, it's the same. It was the same thing, the vernacular of the day. And I really liked golf. Golf is a physical game, but it's also a huge head game. And then I did nothing constant um, in sports, active exercise, whatever. Other all the years I was a journalist and raising the kids and being married and blah 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 you know regular having a life, um, but no time for anything that resembled exercise, I, or I I chose not to take any time for that and just wished that I could. And then I bought a tandem bike, and all of a sudden I was just phenomenally happier because we were out every weekend and many afternoons or evenings. And we, you know, we, we went from five miles as an exercise to see if it would work to a hundred miles in a day, mm -hmm. a lot of forties and sixties and had a wonderful time. And wow. then I learned how to row and he saw that it was magical for me. And so he took the class the next year. I mean, we just both, it just grabbed us and stole us and we were done. Yeah. So it hooked both of you, it hooked both of you, really. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. We row a double. Yeah. We both have, we, now we both have singles. I'm such an extrovert that I stayed away from singles. I mean, if you, if, if you row a single, you take four good strokes, you don't have anybody to tell. <laughs> right. What's yeah. the sense of doing it? You know, I mean, if you can't share it. 
And so it looked awful. And then the pandemic comes, came. And the only way to get six feet away from everybody mm. was to be in a single. So I bought a single. We've seen a couple photos online of your boat. Could you describe it for us? Um, well, I, I called Wintech and I said, I want one of those. And he said, well, we have boats coming over from, from China and they're on the Pacific Ocean and I've sold all of them except one and it's very pink. And I'm not much of a girly girl. And the whole pink thing was like, really? So I said, yes, I love pink, I said, because that was the boat he had. Mm -hmm. So he brought it and it was very pink. And uh, then lots of friends who know me and know that the color and I don't particularly match suggested names. And Pepto-Bismol was actually the one that I like best. So I, call, I don't call it Pepto-Bismol. I just call it Pepto. Do you actually have, do you have the name lettered on your boat, Pepto? I haven't gotten around to that, but. I think there's a lot of probably unnamed singles out there these days with COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I understand you were a volunteer swim instructor as well. So comfortable in water. I taught 150 low-income kids how to swim in a six year, six month, six week program for yeah. seven years. And that was oh, wow. one of the things I just, it, you know, it's like, that's one of the things I'm, I loved the most and I am most proud of. Very cool. Oh, this is really interesting because they're all adding up to a kind of master's athlete, right? So now you're this really well-rounded athlete. You've got all this experience. Is that someplace you ever thought you'd be given the challenges early on with uh, participating in organized sport? Hmm. Well, I was before organized sport. No such thing as a girl's soccer or after school, anything. So I, I'd never, I had, I went to summer camp and had huge amounts of coaching in every sport from archery to swimming to everything. Um, from those mostly physical education majors where the, the counselors were physical education majors. And they were the ones that sparked the idea of lifelong taking care of your body, exercising, do stuff. Incidentally, go back to the learn to row. One of the reasons the timing was that is because I was diagnosed with type two diabetes. And I said, what do I do now? And hmm. the doctor said, drop your carb intake. And he listed what that meant because I've never been on a diet in my life, but I, I weighed a more than I should have or wanted to. Um, I was probably up, to, I was up to about 140 and I'm five feet, four and a half was, now I'm shrinking some five, three, but they, but he said, you know, and exercise a lot regularly. So I'd done exercise in fits and starts. And even though we've been tandem biking a lot, um, I really wanted something that was, seven days a week, possibly, instead of the weekends. Mm -hmm. And so I basically went from the doctor's office to the boathouse. And <laughs> it was probably in within a week or two that, you know, that the timing was just perfect. So that's, perfect. You know, that's another thing that drives this. Yeah, I've met a lot of, I've taught a lot of Learn to Row. I've taught for about 12 years, adult Learn to Row. And I see a lot of women like you coming in later in life, you know, well after, uh, you know, maybe in retirement even, 
and telling me these stories of how they were either denied sport, there wasn't a sport opportunity, um, they really wanted to reinvent themselves as, you know, a rower, and didn't, they, they hadn't even tapped into a real solid sense of fitness, wellness, being an athlete, that's a hard, it's like, it's like when people don't call themselves an artist, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not an artist. There's a lot of masters athletes who say, oh, no, 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 I'm not an athlete. And I was like, oh, yes, you are. You, you look and you have all of the trappings, right? You're, yeah. you're committing to a sport and a team. I mean, at, at our age, the men have many, I mean, Mickey, Mickey learned how to row when he was 65. But the, the men that he races against, and he races a single, I've never raced a single, but that's a you know, brand new thing for me. But, um, but the men he races against are often men who learned how to row when they were in high school. There's a 95-year-old yeah. guy that he's raced against, raced in the same boat in Europe. He rows with the Octos. They're yes. all over 80. He was, when he first started with them, he was one of the kids. He was like 78. And so, so the guy behind him from Poland has been rowing since he's 14. He coached Mickey because he didn't like Mickey's stroke. And so he coached him in French. The two of them found French together. And that goes on. But these, you know, these guys have been rowing many of them, most of them, you know, the, the good ones from since college. So a latecomer like Mickey is unusual as far as I can tell. And there just aren't any women. I mean, nobody would let you row unless you happen to live in Philadelphia and knew Ernestine Bear during World War II. I mean, it just, it, it wasn't happening. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, that that generation of rowers, um, most of them have come to the sport late in life. Unless they can't, uh, yeah, yeah. Unless they were, unless they were with Zlack, for instance, in San Diego, or right. which has been around exactly. forever, or uh, with Mar Phil you know Martha Beatty got a hold of you in in Seattle. I mean it, that kind of thing, but but still. And the other thing is, culturally, people don't necessarily care. Families don't. The kids don't much much care where the where the father is. The father goes off to work and or travels or does something important in, in my generation. And the woman is, either stays home or figures out how to handle the, the kid part and the meals part and all that part and right. the and, you know and the carpool part. Um, you figure that out. So they really want you to be there at breakfast. They want you to be there at dinner. And whether you're a, you know, 5.30, 6.30 rowing club, you know, in the morning or 5.30, 6.30 in Chestertown, that has no traffic. So we could row in the morning or we could row in the afternoon. There just aren't enough cars to, to be an issue. So, so all of the women would go to work. And, and I was working for myself, so I didn't have a schedule. And I have my own little business. And, um, and you know, so we would row at 5.30, 6.30, you know, depending on when the sun went down. But we were done with our kids. I mean, kids didn't care where we were at 5.30 or 6.30. My kids in Alaska and southern Chile and Patagonia and, and Vermont. Nobody, mm -hmm. nobody cared where I was. 
Right. We, I see a lot of women come in to learn to row as soon as they're empty nesters yeah. Uh, yeah. or their kid is old enough, you know, to get themselves up and feed them breakfast or, or, or something like that. Yeah, they get a driver's license and they don't care where you are. Right. Get bonus Steady State content, early access to podcast episodes and store discounts when you join our Patreon community for as little as $5 a month. Become a patron today at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash Patreon. In two, we're back with Margie Ellsberg. That's one, two. Thinking about your transition um, to starting to row with Chinook and the development of your athleticism and your motivation and your desire for competition, and when you joined Chinook, what were you looking for maybe that you weren't accessing or had access to with your local club? So, so Chester River Rowing Club, when Deb Davis was there, and Deb Davis is one of the two or three, the three women who started Chinook. It's Leslie, um, Leslie Wright from Canada, uh, now from, where is she? She's in Arizona. And um, they, so, Deb really taught me, didn't, Deb didn't teach me how to row, but she taught me how to race. Mm. And for a while, we had enough racers that you could rub us together and make a fire and make a team that could, that would go to nationals. Or if Worlds was on the East Coast, we would go there. We went all sorts of places with Deb, but the number of racers got smaller and smaller Mm. and smaller. The club is very price sensitive. It got to the point where very few could take the time off from work and could invest in the hotels and the eating and the how much the trailer cost and all those things. That so that so Mickey and I and one other gal, sometimes two, that was it. And you you can't go to nationals and fill up your dance card if you know if you only have a, a few people. So we did that as it got smaller and smaller. About that time, Deb decided we weren't, Deb had decided we weren't working hard enough to make a hard, you know, to go up against Sagatuck and go up, you know, just, it wasn't going to happen. So, so we got lucky and we did really well for a tiny club, but Deb was looking for a bigger time gig. And so she had started racing, not with us. And then and then she and Leslie and the third gal started Chinook. And in the beginning, it was sort of a tighter age range. Mm-hmm. But within not long, six months or a year, they decided to, 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 and it was all women, I think, the first year, and maybe a couple of guys. But, and then they decided to just make it a bigger thing, bigger age range. And she called both of us, Mickey and me. And we were down to Mickey and the girls, and the girls were only three of us. And, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't working for him either because he didn't have anybody to play with. There were no men. So, um, I, you know, we could do a quad or something. But um, so when she said, do you want to do this? It was like, yeah, we'll give it a shot, see what happens. And that bunch of people's magical. You know, they come ready. So, so if... if I don't know how much I was paying attention to working, really working hard at being the best I could be, just being really good physical condition. I don't begin to do what some of those folks do, but at the same time, I'm working harder than I've ever worked at keeping me in shape year round. 
And so for, for folks who don't know, Chinook provide a training strategy for the yeah. season, correct? And then, and then it brings together rowers from across the country for regattas. And I'm wondering, have you noticed since you um, and Mickey got involved um, several years ago with Chinook, have there been a few more rowers in the KIJ categories for you to race against? Well, the largest number seems to be um, probably 40s, 50s. I, I mean, I, I'm in boats with the middle and older or, or the upper middle and older folks. Um, as a matter of fact, I coxed a guy's boat on the last day of nationals. They were 87, 82, I think I'm right, 81, and the kid was 78. Nice. A stroke. Yeah. And I was the Cox, and I'd been there for four years. This was four days. This was Sunday. This was just now, this year, in where were we this year? In Oak Ridge, Ridge Tennessee. Oak Ridge. So we're at Oak Ridge, and I'm looking at these old guys. I mean, I know Mickey, obviously, and you know, and these old guys, and I'm thinking, why did Leslie ask me to cox? She never asks me to cox. She knows I can cox, but I'm not the level of cox that she hires, you know, that she brings in. And so I'm thinking, oh, well, it's a, like a throwaway thing. It's these four old guys, and my job will be to bring them back alive. Let's, <laughs> let's not get greedy, you know. They yeah. don't run up the wall, don't do anything stupid, and we'll see what happens. And we go to get in the boat, and one of the guys is having trouble keep, having trouble taking his shoes off. So some two, one or two people are helping him there so he can get in the boat, and then he falls back onto the dock, and I'm getting into the hole in the bow of the boat. It's a four. And I'm going, oh, man, you know, just bring him back alive. Mm -hmm. Don't do anything stupid. And so we get in the boat and they paddle and we're fine. And I, you know, zigzag and we go, we turn left to go up the length of the course to the starting line. And they get kind of very businesslike when mm -hmm. we turn left. And then we go up and then we get in line to get, you know, hook onto the stake boat. And I don't have to tell these people how to do anything. I just have mm -hmm. to get them in the right place. We were the first boat hooked on to the stake boat. It was so businesslike. It was like, ooh, these people are really good. I wonder what will happen. <laughs> and we were so old. We weren't, there was no, we looked to the left, looked to the right, and everybody was younger. We were in, I don't know, J, K, L. I don't know. I don't know what we were, but there was nobody that approached who we were. And so everybody was younger. You know, there were, if we were, Jay, I guess, uh, whatever. So I was, you know, there was a couple of eyebrows and we hooked on. And then this, the marshal said, you know, attention, go. And all of a sudden the boat is going. They took off at a 32, two and a half mm -hmm. and maintained it. And then they dropped and nobody said, I'm not talking to them. I am not instructing them on how to race. And they dropped to a 29 and a half and they stayed there locked and loaded yeah. all the way till we got to the fourth quarter. And, you know, like, shoo, shoo, 
We get there, we hit the red buoys and they go back up to 32. Yeah. And we beat like, I don't know, two boats, three yeah. boats. I mean, it was just like remarkable. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and when I went and got the gold medals, because they give free gold medals, if you're the only one in the class, have a nice time. You would, if it make any difference, you would walk to the finish line. You know, you could have taken a week and a half. They didn't have to do that. And when I went and got the medals and handed them to them, I said what I felt in my heart, that it had been an honor to be in that boat with those guys. Mm. This was... These were four rowers. Yeah. There's just four athletes. They were amazing. And you had to have been in the boat mm -hmm. to know how remarkable it really was. Wow. What a good yeah. story. Wow. Yeah. yeah. There's something about, you know, those octos when we all see them at regattas and everyone kind of stops for a minute and we all kind of wonder, wow, will we be doing this when we're that age? I certainly hope so. And then, you know, there, there's something um, really heartwarming about those guys, probably the guys that we, that you are talking about as well, who, you know, maybe on land can't quite stand up all the way straight. You know, he can't quite bend down to tie their shoe, but you know what? They just won a race and they've got medals hanging around their necks and it's super motivational. I love seeing um, the crews that are even the Martha's Moms level and Zlack uh, Masters women who've been doing it despite uh, any restrictions. Um, and they just felt like that's what they wanted to be doing. We have a club here. We have Martha's Moms here, of course. Um, and we also have a club called the Ancient Mariners. And they are the AMs, you know, and those guys, there's the, there's the, there's the AMs, the clams and the Rams and the clams are the retired Mariners. Um, and these guys are all these towering older men, you know, men in their eighties. Um, but the clams are the classic ancient Mariners and the Rams are the really ancient Mariners. And those are the guys <laughs> They have to like go pick them up to bring them to coffee yeah. after practice, you know, but the clams, uh, the clams and the rams and the ams, they're, they're just, I got to cox them one time. So I was just thinking about that. I coxed them during out seat racing yeah. and I didn't have to do anything. And they, I don't know if they did this in this boat, but these guys, they yelled at each other during the race. <laughs> and these guys were like, come on boys, come on boys. I love that yeah, race yeah. energy. Yeah. Margie, one thing you did tell me when I met you at Nationals was you, you told me a bit about your, um, your career and being in journalism. And I'm kind of wondering, so you've seen this whole progression of journalism and news. What is your kind of take on where things have moved? Making content is completely ubiquitous, right? Tara and I jumped on the bandwagon last year and started to do this podcast What's kind of your feeling about how journalism and podcasting have come together? Well, it used to be that broadcast, meaning broad audience journalism. Um, newspapers have overwhelmingly, and almost exclusively now, with a few huge exceptions, not many, 
um, uh, feed a local audience. The local may be a large city and a large metropolitan area, but, but nobody was the New York Times on every newsstand in every, every place, not even the New York Times. That's now very old story, probably since about Watergate, they've been expanding where they are. But it was television and radio was also very local because the reach was only as far as the AM or FM signal went. Um, and so you couldn't talk to everybody until the internet. And it's, it's fascinating that people who now, everybody has access. You can do this without having to build a tower and hire a staff. And so you just get on and call me up and say, you know, let's talk to you. And then the world could listen to us because I have a cousin or a friend or something and they tell each other and all of a sudden and somebody goes rowing and takes a hit, you know, you get, you get hit and all of a sudden people are listening. And so, so in that way, it's given voice, you know, this is a variation on a theme of journalism. It's a piece of journalism and you can do that. You don't have bosses who censor you and who fact check you and you develop a reputation for actually paying attention to what you're doing and making it responsible and fun and interesting and so on. I left in part because it was just time. I'd done it for 25 years and I knew more people in jail than anybody should ever know. <laughs> and um, a lot of them were nifty. A lot of them were really interesting people. A lot of them, you know, I mean, there's all of this. I mostly did local news, but I also, I was in Washington, D.C. So when I was assignment manager at, you know, at one of the channels, um, uh, you know, I was doing congressional, you know, I was doing lots of, of um, national stories and also international stories. So I personally, as a reporter, like local news better because the professional politicians are professional controllers of what's said. And so that's not as interesting to me and it's not as real. In the end, when 24 seven round the clock, CNN, Fox were, had pushed everybody and the internet had pushed the newspapers to you just threw stuff on out there that a newspaper couldn't publish something that people didn't know. Everybody mm. knows everything from the instant it happens. And so then you have you have a very different kind of journalism. And and the voracious appetite of television, mm. of 24-7 television means that you just relentlessly do the same stories over and over and over and over. And I decided that it was time to leave in part because it was time to leave, but it was also, I decided we were as much of the problem as we were of the solution. This is not amusing anymore. Mm. This is hurtful. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, an enormous, you know, we all know it's an enormous part of the divisiveness in the country. So when yes. when Walter Cronkite was the only one, one of two or three, four people who were giving the news. Now, if you happen to be white 
you know, Christian, love your mother, eat apple pie, then that was a view of the news and that's what everybody got. If you were anything else, if you were LGBTQ, you were never mentioned. If you were, if, if your skin color on your background wasn't, um, you know, Western European, you know, whatever, um, then you weren't included. And so I like a lot of what's going on, but I, I can't, you know, it's like a lot of what's going on is toxic. Yeah, and it's an interesting spot to be in, and, and I agree with you, right? It, it, what do you do with this pulpit that's available to you? Right, and but I think there's a struggle right now with what's trustworthy and what's believable yeah. or what's, and it's just like the person that you feel the most alignment with. And yeah. when we started Steady State Network, we felt like there was already a lot of representation on one end of the spectrum, which was very technical, right? There's a few podcasts out there that are very technical, uh, they talk about coaching, they talk about force curve, they talk about all of those kinds of things. And that with the comeuppance resurgence of BLM and uh, DEI at US Rowing and how much work we have to do, we just really thought, let's tell everybody's story. You know, let's take a whole swath. So we interview, you know, like the board president of like the Halifax Rowing Club in Nova Scotia, or, you know, who's just yeah. this regular person who picked up rowing when their kids graduated from high school or whatever, you know, you get the idea. Like these are our, that's our main audience. Um, River Valley has a program. You ought to do this one. Upper Valley has a program free. Everybody who makes it happen from the Cox to the administrative people, every single person who makes this happen is a volunteer, no money involved. And the rowers are, are qualified to join this group called CREW, oh, Cancer Recovery Through Rowing. Okay. And if you have ever been diagnosed with cancer, you are welcome to join this group. There's now a medical study going on with this group. It's about two and a half years old. Runs 12 months. They erg all, you know, off season and they row on the water, singles as well as large boats. And these people, some of them, I mean, most of them can't help carry the boat. Some of them, it's all they can do just to get there. They just keep coming. This is not like any other forced exercise, you know, go to the gym because it's good for you. They come because everybody in the boat understands. Mm -hmm. If you get a bad diagnosis tomorrow, everybody understands. If you get a good test back, everybody knows what you've been through and where you are today. It is amazing. You can't, these, some of these people drive more than an hour just to get there to, to, you know, to have to. I mean, it sounds like a, a, just a wonderful place to find your community and to find support. And know? make it relatable. I mean, it's like, if you mix people being able to relate to each other right. with fitness and wellness, right. And you bring everybody to that space and it's a great safe space for people also, but it's also challenging. It's not like it's just show up and, you know, eat cookies. It's like, yeah, no, let's work out. Let's get better. Let's get any kind um, of cancer, 
any time in your life. So if you're 65 or 85 and you were diagnosed and have been, you know, cancer free for 40 years, you're welcome. And Great. if you're in, if, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, in heavy duty, you know, stuff's going on now, um, blood work and this work and that work and all the toxins and so on, those people are there too. Everybody understands. Um, so thank you for letting us know about that because, you know, we do this small club spotlight about four or five times a year. And sometimes it's the club itself isn't very small. Like you said, there's 200 members at, at yours, but there's these programs within clubs that really shine and really have a, a great service. Um, thank you for letting us know about that. Um, what's next for you? Are you gonna? Are you going to the Charles? Yeah, Chinook. Um, I'm in a women's four, um, veteran women's four, hmm. and much to our disappointment. We're the only boat. Have you ever coxed the Charles? I've coxed it twice. The first time I did it, I talked to a gal who coxed for Boston University for years and was just, you know, and I knew that river even though I'd never been on it, in a, you know, in a boat. And I knew that course and every decision I made was perfect. I mean, we nailed the footbridge, you know, we did everything we did and we were neck and neck with somebody going under the Elliott Bridge. Ooh. I wanted, and we had just come around the 180 with the blades dipped on the other side. I mean, it was like we were exactly, you know, on the other side of the, the line. We were exact everything I wanted to do. Nobody was in my way. Everything was great. It was amazing. And I, as we went in neck and neck, I wanted to get to the hop over that boat and get on the right side. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. I could, you know, so I could tuck past that hard turn yep. and yeah. go to the finish line. And I said, we need to beat this boat now in, you know, in two, one, two. And the boat levitated. It yeah. got up and it went over the other boat <laughs> and landed softly in the water and took that turn yeah. tight. And it took off. We were 16 out of 32 or something like that. Right. But when we, when the eight of when the nine of us got out of that boat, we had rode the best race we these nine people could possibly have ever rode. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. If, if when I talk to those people, and those are the, you know, those are the Chester River people, this little no-name club. Uh, we all feel the same way. We can all feel what it was like to get out of that boat and know we had rode the best race. We Two years later, I coxed it, and every decision I made was trash. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I mean, I shut the boat down at the, huh. at, at, at the, at the Weeks Footbridge um, rather than run into it or a boat or the bridge or who right, right, right. run into it. I mean, like everything was disastrous. I, you know, I, every, my decisions where the other boats were, it was awful. And it was just fun. Yeah, it's interesting what happens. You <laughs> At know, the you end never... of it, it's all just fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you just don't know what you're going to get. You know, you, you might set out thinking that everything's going to be wonderful. I've got everything. Oh, yeah, well, it had been great years ago. So why yeah. not? Yeah. 
Um, well, I so know that I know that I've had uh, we when we when I've talked to people about rowing, inevitably, if we've had a few glasses of wine or something's been going on, inevitably these kinds of stories are what comes yeah. out. And I love these kinds of you know stories from the trenches of of beautiful moments in rowing. And and I remember I've had mine. You know, we've talked Rachel and I've talked about like when you had that moment of levitation, essentially, um, where you're flying. You know, and mine was at the San Diego Crew Classic and Rachel's had one as well. And we've talked about it a lot. And I love hearing those stories because it just, it makes me just crave getting back in an eight. We're not rowing uh, eights really at this point, but um, next year, hopefully, right? That, yeah. that big boat, right? And I bet those people remember it. I bet if you all got together for coffee, oh, they'd be oh, like, yeah. oh, oh, remember yeah. that race? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's legendary. It's legendary. They also remember the time on the Schuylkill, the upper Schuylkill, Kingshead, when I ran the boat into the abutment. Oh, and we pushed ouch. off. And that pushed us into a high school boat that was passing us because we were very busy, you know, at the abutment. And and we pushed off and all of a sudden we clashed with the abutment and then we clashed with the, the their oars. And then we finished the race and I had one woman on, you know, in the boat who's so angry with me for being the most incompetent moron in the history of rowing. Mm. And then we, they, they were having trouble figuring out the numbers and we won the race anyway, mm. even though we had stopped for all these, you know, excuse me, I'm so sorry, Bridge, and excuse me, I'm so sorry, boat. And and we we'd had a fabulous race up until some Eddie just grabbed me and threw huh, me. Yeah. I was like, and the boat behind and a double, I watched a double get thrown into the abutment too. So it mm. wasn't I don't know what it was, but something weird in the water threw literally threw the boat into the abutment. Mm. And so nobody was hurt. It was fine. And and she was so angry, she went to her car to drive home. We had to call her back to come get the medals. Mm -hmm. She was furious. Oh. We'd beaten Vesper and Saga, you know, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so wow. um, we all have stories like that. And I, you know, could go on and on about coxing stories. I've, I've rowed, coached, and coxed, and I've coxed badly. And I've had other rows where, you know, I can't believe that the things came out of my mouth the way that they did and everything worked out just fine, you know. <laughs> Um, well, we want to say thank you so much. We've got, we've had you for an hour. So thank you so much for talking with us. I'm sure we could talk with you for another hour about your stories about rowing and coxing and sweeping and sculling and cycling and all of that. Um, but we'd like to wrap up our uh, podcast episodes with a rapid fire Q&A. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. <clears throat> Sweep or scull? Yes. Okay. Bow seat or stroke seat? Bow. Salt water. I really like them both, but go ahead. Okay. Salt water or fresh water? Uh, uh, fresh water. I, I don't know. Chester River was salty. I, yeah, I mean, water. Water. That's the best answer we've ever gotten. Water. <laughs> Uh, sprint race or a head race? It race. Okay. You know? I, okay. Yeah. 
Favorite coxswain command to give or receive? Well, the favorite one that came out of my mouth was telling a novice boat that we're DF, we had shut the boat down for horrible crabs at least three times. And the horn been going off for everybody else crossing the finish line. And I said, I'm sorry about rapid fire. And so I said, you know, they were just so tense. And I said, we're DFL and you're doing great. And somebody said, what's DFL? <laughs> I told him what's DFL and all of the adrenaline flew out of the boat. And all of a sudden, choo, 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 they were rolling. It was great. We had a great last, I don't know, bunch of yards. Awesome. That does relieve some pressure when you find yeah. out your DFL. Yeah. <laughs> I told him what it meant. Yeah. Hugs and high fives. Hugs and high fives. I like that. Yeah. All right. We've got two more questions. Uh, uni or Tank and Trow? I'm 78. We don't do unis. Awesome. We all have bodies. We, you I know, can't get good. them off fast enough to pee. You know, oh, I got my own true. problems. True. <laughs> okay, last one. Uh, coffee before or after a row? Oh, before. Right. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. I'm glad we got uh, all this worked out. We got to chat for an hour and... Um, Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you both. You yeah. did a nice job. Thank oh, you. thank you so much, Margie. Okay. All right. Well, thank All you, right. Margie, and we will talk with you very, very soon. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. To see photos of Margie and Mickey Ellsberg and get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Steady State Podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Friedman. And me, I'm Tara Morgan. Between us, we have 33 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience and running successful rowing-related enterprises. Rachel is the founder of RowSource, the original resource for master's rowers. And Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, championing inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at RowSource and Seize the Oar. All right. High five, Rachel. High five, Tara. All right. We'll see everybody soon. Bye. In two, let it run. That's one, two, let it run. <laughs>